This episode of the Epics Podcast was made possible by listeners like you. Big thank you this week to Steve and Larie for supporting the podcast. I can't tell you how much it means to me. If you would also like to support the Epics Podcast, join our Patreon campaign to give monthly and unlock exclusive bonus content. Find out more at epicpodcast.com slash support. You've probably heard of this, the whole angry black woman trope. Like right. the whole, like, oh, like if she were to say or do something in response to that, then she's just mad. Oh yeah, of course I'm mad. Because people get away with saying stuff like that all the time. But like, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are being dehumanized because they dehumanized me. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the Epics Podcast, where we want to hear the stories of those who are different from ourselves, so we can better understand them and be a part of creating change. My name is Alex Way, and I'm a white guy trying to do just that, learn and do better. The voice you just heard belongs to my amazing guest this week, Kyra Dawkins. Kyra is the author of the book, The We and the They. She is a storyteller, an avid reader and learner. And in our conversation today, Kyra talks about her experiences falling in love with words and language, dealing with racism as a black woman in this world, and why she wrote her book. She shares her unique insights on the perspectives of our humanity as it exists both individually and as a part of a greater collective. There's so much wisdom shared in this episode. I'm just going to hurry up and get out of the way so you can get to it. Well, Kyra, thank you so much for coming on with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm excited. Me too. Would you be able to describe yourself, what you look like, and where you are today? So... My name is Kyra, Kyra Ann Dawkins. I am a almost six foot, like a cool 5'11 and a half woman with like a deep caramel complexion. I have my hair up in its characteristic braided bun wrapped in a headscarf. And I am in the illustrious, notorious New York City. So that's, it's a very fun place to be a young adult, I will say. <laughs> but it's hustling and bustling all the time, even as we're emerging out of the pandemic. That's fantastic. And what else did you want our listeners to know about you before we really get into it? So I would say that ultimately, I'm fairly like at the beginning of my career. But I would mm -hmm. say that I want to dedicate my whole life to honoring human voices and just mm -hmm. words. I've always been obsessed with words. So I've had the privilege of writing um, a novel now, but I also have the privilege of being an author coach and helping other people consolidate their words so they can get their messages out into the world. So yeah, if I want anybody to know anything about me is that I love words, but more importantly, I love words that are carried by human voices. Mm. That really resonates with me as well. Obviously speaks to a lot of what I want on the podcast is to hear people's voices. And I'm also a language major. I'm, I majored in Spanish. So I like language and words as well. What draws you to words? Why are you so fascinated with this? It's interesting. So my parents told me that I started talking at eight months old. So oh, I wow. guess, I, yeah, that's early. <laughs> well, I was the first born out of my family. I have, there are four kids. I'm the oldest of four. So my mom, when I, when I started talking so early, my mom was like, what? <laughs> who is this baby anyway but interestingly I am a very I'm a very loquacious person I talk a lot but um I have a younger sister so my mom had three girls in 33 months mm. so full womb and then my little brother came like seven years after that but my sister was only 15 months younger than me 
Her name is Kendra, and she is autistic, nonverbal, and epileptic. So growing up, since I had always been talkative, and I really still am, like, have I ever stopped talking? Like, no one knows. I would say when I was really little, I had, like, this strange idea in my own mind that, like, I had all the words so that I could help my sister, so that I could better on her behalf, you know? Like, I always wondered, like, where the words that she wanted to say, like, went. Like, she could say a couple of words, but not very many. And I wondered, like, where they got anchored, where they got trapped. So I just sort of became obsessed with the capacity to communicate orally because, like, I, I, I longed to be able to communicate in that way with my sister. But as I got older, I started to realize that even though I was well-intentioned, the fact that I wanted to speak on my sister's behalf was misguided because mm. ultimately, like, people used to congratulate me and be like, oh, my gosh, you're such a good big sister. You know, you're being a voice for the voiceless. But then I'm like, mm. wait a second. My sister is not voiceless. She just had right. the voice that society is learning to understand better. Mm. And it would be wrong for me to, like, derive, like, some sort of pride and, like, being like, look at me. I'm being such a good advocate. No. The person who needs to be centered here is my sister and other people like her in the, that community. And so, I mean, I, I love my sister with all of my heart and I want to be better at communicating with her and I mean, supporting her and advocating for her, but the emphasis being on her and not me. And then I've been obsessed with languages as well. Like while I was in college, even though my major was medical humanities, I took three different languages in college, Spanish, French, and tree. I randomly do Duolingo for fun. Like for some reason, like I'm doing French, Spanish, Swahili, Esperanto. Like why Esperanto? I guess I just find it interesting. I don't know. But the point is, all of that is to say I'm drawn to language because somebody who I really, really, really love. I'm trying to figure out how I could continue to use language to honor her voice the best that I can. Mm. That's a really beautiful foundation for writing a book and being an author, really. I mean, and, and I love the innocence and in the finding the voice for her as a child. Obviously, you know, if, if we were to say that in a more adult context, there's some problems that may arise with that. But as an older sister and as a kid, like, that's this really beautiful intention that you had to to want to help her find her voice. And I I'm so I'm so struck by the curiosity that you had of where did her words go? And you, so you knew then it's not that she didn't have words, mm -hmm. it's that she didn't speak them. Mm -hmm. But I want to get more into into your story a little bit as well. Tell me a little where you guys grew up and you've already touched a bit on some of your siblings and you know, that your parents are both West Point grads, but what about your childhood a little bit? So that's actually a very good question. I would say that my childhood was like, you know, how you skip rocks across a lake. It was kind of like that. So, I mean, granted, my parents were technically retired from the military by the time I was born. But the mm -hmm. thing was, because they were so connected to the military lifestyle, like they took jobs that in a way, like, so they went from military to Procter & Gamble, and Procter & Gamble oh. is very, well, just in general. Like, that organization takes on a lot of military families because they, like, connect 
like they treat like the way in which they circulate their employees in a similar way as deploying like military people. Of course, it's like not the same because you don't have to face violence and things like that. But you know what I mean? Right. So I was born in my, my sister. I was born in Cincinnati and my sister Kendra was born in Cincinnati. But then Procter & Gamble sent my mom and dad to Geneva, Switzerland. So I lived in Geneva, Switzerland mm. for the first, for like, from when I was two to like five-ish. I was, like, first school was a French-speaking school that was only two blocks away from the United Nations headquarters. So I lived in Geneva, Switzerland from two to five, then back in Mineral, Ohio, and then Irvine, California for two years, and then back to Solon, Ohio. Technically, my family has been in the greater Cleveland, Ohio area for the past almost 15, it'll be 15 years this year. But the thing is, even while I was there, I hopped from school to school, two years, one place, two years, another place. And then I went away to boarding school for high school. I went to this boarding school called Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire for high school. And so I would say that my childhood, like the biggest constant has always been my family, always will be. Um, we're a very robust and illustrious bunch, seven strong, but yeah, I would say that growing up, I think that I saw words as my companion also, which is why it's really shaped, like, I guess my budding career and like academic mm. interests, because I'm a very extroverted individual. I am not shy in the slightest, but because I knew I moved around a lot, like I was always afraid of like connecting to people because I was already always anticipating having to leave even you know it was very it was very odd I don't know why I was like making that assumption at already for such a young age but that's I guess that's neither here nor there but all of that is to saying like that's how I was gravitated towards so quickly like even though I love people <laughs> mm -hmm. I love people a lot I would constantly be behind, be behind a book or something because I could carry a book anywhere yeah. And I find that interesting that you kind of developed this anticipation that you're going to leave. And it seems to make sense that that came from experiencing a, a lot of transition and a lot of change. So from kind of the, the outside perspective, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I guess I can see where that comes from. But do you feel like getting to experience all those different places and areas, obviously Geneva, is, I assume is much different than Cincinnati. I have only been to the airport in Cincinnati, so I don't know anything much else about it. And I've never been to Switzerland, but my perception of those two places, you know, they're probably very different. And then I'm assuming you had a very different experience in boarding school in New Hampshire then. What do you feel like you gained from that diversity of experience and exposure to all these different places that has kind of shaped your worldview that you have with you now? Mm -hmm. Some of my friends, when I talk to them about how much I moved around a lot when I was a kid or how much like my family traveled some of my friends are like wow you didn't have the opportunity to have like an anchored like hometown childhood that's like so sad and I'm like mm. no like I I mean I do see the value of that like stability as well but I mean again I, I experienced stability in my family and I also felt like in seeing so much of the world obviously it's not like I would go out somewhere and put myself in danger but like I'm not afraid. Like people are mm. humans everywhere. Well, I wanted to go back to something that you said just a minute ago about preserving culture, particularly when you're talking about as a black woman, you're preserving some of that culture from your ancestors who came here as slaves. 
Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about how that has impacted your life now and how how you grew up to be aware of that? Mm-hmm. So I would say, and this actually was a huge part of shaping my passion for not just language, but for oral history more mm-hmm. specifically. Um, growing up, my whole family would tell me these stories, but particularly my grandfather with his beautiful, robust, baritone voice. He would tell me and my young like younger siblings stories, not just about our family's legacy of survival. Like for example, like my great grandfather who fought in World War II, like, and was there on D-Day. And my family, my dad actually received a, like when he got accepted into West Point, my great grandfather gave him like a Nazi dagger that he took off of a soldier during D-Day. Like, look, mm. but all of that is to say like, oral history or the continuity or understanding my place in the broader narrative of like of my ancestors of my identity as a black woman my grandfather told me not just the specific stories of my family but old wife tales like the people who could fly like the people the people who grew wings in order to escape slavery or john henry the man who was so strong that he carved a railroad track and beat the train engine through a mountain by himself. And it's actually based off of a real person who I guess he didn't do it like, you know, by himself carving out of a mountain, but he did beat the train engine and died soon thereafter, just trying to like allow for his, he, he and his comrades, his friends to not lose their job to the new train building, mm-hmm. like track thing. So I definitely think that I wouldn't understand my sense of place in the world had it not been for these stories, even though some of them are very explicitly old wives' tales. Weirdly enough, my grandfather told me this story and so did my great-great-grandmother. There's this thing called being born in a veil. And, like, if you're born in a veil, like, you have, like, again, old wives' tale, but you have, like, the ability to relate to, um, like, words more and you have like a heightened awareness of like emotion so it's called like you you have like a second sight i was born in a veil so everybody when i was born everybody's like oh no she's a special one so like the very existence of that story has like shaped how certain members of my family see me and so i think that all of that is to say Without these stories, many of which are directly tied to my lineage, I wouldn't be drawn to those same, like, similar kinds of narratives that exist in other cultures and bringing those stories, because oftentimes those stories are just dismissed as old wives' tales, like, oh, those are things that people just say. But, like, everybody knows the story of, like, Snow White, and even though technically we don't know that story because the real story of Snow White is a hot mess. Disney has changed some stuff. All of that is to say, like, it's just this knowing my place or understanding who I am through narrative, through story, just gives me, that drives me, gives me a sense of purpose. And I want other people to feel the same way. And in sharing those stories that shaped them, we could all be shaped by stories together. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a you know, very foundational belief that I have in starting this podcast is that we can be shaped by stories. So we obviously share that. 
And I want to ask you now, how did that then lead you to the point of writing the we and the they? How, where did the idea for this book come from? So I've always wanted, this is kind of cliche, but I must say I've always wanted to write a book because I've always been obsessed with words and it would just be really cool to be able to say that I wrote a book. Yeah. But I realized that I felt like there is such a richness in the fact that oral history, which is a relatively, even the oral history has been around forever. It's a relatively new academic field. Something that's very rich in oral history is that it's much more censored on collectives. Hmm. You're much more likely to, to hear we in, in terms of describing certain stories. Or even if the story has specific characters, it's the we that addresses and contextualizes it as a means of understanding life. And so I wanted to write the we in the day because I wanted to create a space where people could embrace being a part of a collective through a narrative because it's true that we don't realize how often collectives are shaped and formed by narratives mm -hmm. and the we in the day points to that creation more explicitly and I also wanted to experiment with the idea of having like a first person plural a collective first person because I don't I didn't see that very much in the books that I read it was very much you know third person or first person or in the occasional second person. But it's like, why not invite people to be a part of the story and question how they position themselves in groups and wonder like how they may inadvertently other others in the narratives that they construct and participate in. Yeah. And I think that that's such a relevant conversation for our society and culture right now and in this day and age, because one thing that we have grown to love to do is categorize ourselves and categorize others and put people in these different groups. Mm -hmm. I can label you, I can label you as a black woman because that's something that I don't need to know you personally you know, to use to categorize about you. And you can label me as a white man. You know, there's these things that we can just put everyone in these different categories, these different boxes. Can you expand a little bit more on the idea of how we can other others? What do you mean when you say other them? Mm -hmm. So I completely concur with what you just said in the sense that on the one hand, we other others when we say like there, there's the othering that happens that's very focused on the external and the hmm. othering that happens inadvertently when we're focusing on the, I guess, internal, so, so to speak. But there's the othering that happens when you're like, oh, I disagree with what that person said. Therefore, we don't share common ground and I'm distancing myself away from them. But on the other hand, or on a similar vein, people don't realize when they other people in this culture of hyper curation, where you're not like intentionally excluding in your mind, but you're only including what you like to reinforce your own biases and your own desires. So like, yes, I'll, people might not even realize that they're othering people because they're not actively thinking to themselves. I'm distancing myself from somebody I disagree with. Rather, it would be, oh, I'm just choosing what I agree with. There are many ways that you can other people, but there are two ways in which it could primarily happen. It's the, I disagree by or like mm -hmm. you inflict harm on me so by 
versus I want to choose what I naturally agree with without necessarily considering the the fact that you're alienating yourself from the other side. It's it's very interesting how that how people we're all susceptible to doing both things, but mm-hmm. the the latter way is a little bit slipperier. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting talk thinking about how, you know, obviously it's not something that we generally will do on purpose, intentionally. Exactly. I don't choose to other you by by dismissing what I don't like about you or what you have to say. It's about it ha- it happens when when I'm only including what I like and what's like me. And that mm-hmm. speaks so much to like the algorithms of social media that only feed us to things that we want to see. And ultimately, I think there's such a destructive potential for all of that. Is that, is that something that it, you address in the, in the book a bit? Yes, I actually, so I think something that happens within the parameters of the we and the they, because in the book itself, it explores the dynamics of, so for, I guess, a little bit of context, so I don't want to spoil the plot for y'all, but for a little bit of context, we in the day is a story that takes place in the con- in the post-apocalyptic time. I won't go mm. so far as to say that it's the past or the future, because in theory, it could be both. But all of this is to say, um, there's a group of people called the we who succumb to who are caught underneath the grip of the Great Famine. The whole world is caught underneath the grip of the Great Famine. And the we coalesce in the desert together because mm. they come to the conclusion or decide that they're going to look out for each other so that nobody starves but and everybody subsists. So the we form out of a shared need, but everybody's mm. still hungry. They're just like barely surviving. They encounter a group of people called the they. And they agree to feed the we if the we agree to go back with the they to build out their farm oasis, like in the midst of like straight up wilderness, the they have been able to buy some dark powers, (laughs) buy some dark powers, fortify a very, very strong, sustainable like farm. And so the we agree to go back with the they and they feed the weed very, very well. Like the most elaborate meals you can imagine, really. But their legs are tied to the chairs as they're eating. The, the they mm. won't let them leave the tables until they eat every single morsel on their plates mm. because, you know, still a great famine. Nothing can go to waste. The we are often seen as disposable to the they if they, they them, if the we themselves become a waste. And so the story navigates when, as six people of the we die while the we are with the day, you find that out in the first couple of pages. So I'm not spoiling anything. And ultimately, in navigating that tension of honoring the stories of the people who pass away, the we realize how both in both components both groups the we realize that they are being dehumanized by the they 
But they, in the act of dehumanizing the we, are being dehumanized themselves. That has a very literal manifestation as well. But in navigating those groups, in addressing sort of like this echo chamber, the we, the they are the people who are like leaning into this echo chamber of like, we're doing what we need to do because this is a means to an end to us. We need this. They just happen to be here. And we're going to use them as like to curate what we want the version of the world to be. Mm-hmm. And we, this is not to say that they're like, oh my goodness, that they are fine. Like we love them. That's not, I wouldn't go so far to say that they agree with them at all because a very abusive power dynamics happen. Mm-hmm. But the we see that the they are human. Or like they're, they don't sever themselves from them because they realize the capacity for them, the we, to be susceptible to the same things. Like the they, the we feel bad for the they because they see what they've, the echo chamber that they've fallen into. And so I think that the, the we and the they speaks to the, what can go, what can happen if we're not careful about the echo chambers we went into, like this is not to say that it's wrong for us to choose things that we like, mm-hmm. but if we refuse to acknowledge the humanity, anytime you minimize somebody else's humanity, you lose your own, mm. but you also have to be intentional about it. And you can't just dismiss someone because they disagree with you. For example, I'm not just going to pull up at a KKK rally because that is literally not safe for me. Like, mm-hmm. But yeah. that doesn't mean that those people, as grotesque as their views are, aren't human beings. Mm-hmm. So it's that I, I, I want the we and the they to continue to introduce those kinds of conversations of if there's one thing that the we are able to do that they cannot is imagine they being part of the we and they just choosing to dissociate because they only want the world to be on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And that was really powerful to me what you just said that anytime you refuse to recognize someone's humanity, you lose some of your own. That, that really hit me deep. And I think that's, that's something that I, I feel like I'm striving to always see the humanity in everyone. And I feel like I naturally am inclined to do that. Again, not that I'm better than anyone else or, you know, I'm, I'm the savior at all, but I feel like it's something I've, I'm training myself constantly to do. And so I feel like I can maybe do that better than some people, but I can also realize how hard that can be sometimes, especially, you know, if we look at just our last four or five years, for example, it's really easy to, <laughs> to think of examples where the other side, quote unquote, can be demonized. And something that really struck me about what you said was, you know, you can't go to a KKK rally because it's not safe for you as a black woman. But you recognize that they're still humans and they still have humanity and that there's innate value in that. Mm-hmm. Even though there are obviously major I guess the kindest way I could say this is blind spots that they have. And I think that if we could all kind of adapt a mindset like that, if you, so for example, if you Kyra, as a black woman can see the humanity that exists within a KKK member, it seems to me that it should be easier 
for me as a Democrat to see the humanity Republican or me as a Republican to see the humanity in a Democrat. That, that should be much, a much simpler acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. You start to wonder how much the polarization that has happened, particularly over the past four or five years, is just absolutely astounding. It's been really heartbreaking to watch different relationships go asunder. And I would say it should be easier, but also it kind of is sort of like this idea of entrenchment, of echo chamberness, of duration. Mm-hmm. Like, why tolerate what you don't want, basically? Mm-hmm. It's like this strange, even if one were to agree with one set of motivations versus the other, like this idea of entitlement and not an opportunity for compromise. Mm. Admittedly, you can't always assume that people have the best intentions because it's true. Some people don't. But like acknowledging that just because somebody disagrees with you about the way to go about something or the fact that somebody is motivated by something like the fact that some that somebody is motivated by something at all indicates humanity i guess Mm. but if that humanity is very mis can be misguided or broken that is still humanity you know yeah that's a very very messy way of trying to construct it but like i've had people call me gorilla before that has Mm. happened to me that is not something i'm proud to say has happened even though like i have no control over that like it cuts deep you know what i mean but like I can't hate that person. First of all, I'm not like that, that bitterness and that pain could literally hurt me for longer than, you know, it should. And, or I don't want that kind of talk to have authority over me. But also, mm. like, I just feel bad for somebody who thinks that. Mm. Like, that means somebody told them that because of the color of my skin, like, I am less than human. That's, that's horrible. Like, that's, I feel so, I feel bad for them. But, like, not in a way where it's, like, oh, like, I'm somehow better because I'm more enlightened. Like, well, no, that's not it either. It's just this invitation to say, like, I'm, I feel so bad that you can't recognize the humanity in me because of things that you've been told. But mm. I recognize the humanity in you. And I just am praying and, like, want to work towards creating narratives. We're both fully honored for the humanity we both possess. Maybe I'm not as enlightened, but I immediately feel feel more sorry for you in that story than I do for them. Yeah, I feel bad for me too. It sucks. I, I'm like I'm angry because the thing is, society will also privilege that perspective inadvertently, Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. when you know the whole you probably heard of this the whole angry black woman trope, like the whole like oh like if she were to say or do something in response to that, then she's just mad. Oh yeah, of course I'm mad. Because people get away with saying stuff like that all the time. But, like, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are being dehumanized because they dehumanized me. I think that's, in a way, a beautiful way of describing this. The the losing of humanity by dehumanizing. It's a kind of tie that's what we were talking about earlier. So when someone puts you in a category, they're categorizing you in that moment. And in... In that moment, they're also dehumanizing you by calling you less than human. And what we're talking about is then they're losing their humanity. But I feel like when we talk about the identity of that person, that person, by, by putting you 
in that other group, they are then more firmly tying themselves to the group that taught them that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes complete sense. Yeah. And as we talk about them losing their humanity, I feel like they're also losing their own personal identity in that. They're becoming part of just that collective. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of a scary thought for our world right now with how much we align ourselves in these different groups. How much of ourselves do we have left? Right. That's a really good point. Like, even though I'm in the book, The We and the They, I wanted to for people to, like, embrace collective and understand the collectives they're part of. In understanding the collectives you're part of, you need to understand your place in them mm. and, know, and be able to evaluate the discourse going on around you. Like, if you're in a collective and you're noticing a pattern of dehumanization of the other, because other, being other in and of itself is not a bad thing because diversity and difference is good. But right. if you're in a collective that is actively saying that the other is less than, then that is an alarm bell. That is when you as an individual need to question your place in that collective. You know, because mm-hmm. sometimes I wonder for people within certain groups, if I genuinely wonder, particularly people who are in groups that hold on to like dehumanizing rhetoric. I wonder how many of them actually believe that or how many of them are like afraid of the severing it would take to Mm. question their place there. Because there's a lot, there may be comfort, there may be community that they've gone, they've grown used to in those contexts. And in order for them to like do the work to question and then potentially remove themselves, like, yeah, like maybe people are people could be afraid of the loneliness of that. There are people who are ignorant and they haven't even considered the option to like question the direction that they're going. And there are people who are cognizant of the direction that they're going and they're still choosing it because mm-hmm. it ultimately favors them. And I feel bad for both parties, really. I feel more of a sympathy or like sadness for the people who just genuinely don't know. And a lot of people are like, they should know. But like, there are some people out there who genuinely don't. And then there are people who choose who know and then maintain that they don't know. And because they choose not to know, but they actually know. See what I'm saying? Right. That's definitely sadder too. Yeah. If we're ranking sadness. That's really sad because it's sort of like, wow, then you're just sort of caught in this echo chamber of dehumanizing other people. And then you think that your humanity is based off of, it's like operating out of scarcity. Like the idea that humanity or like being seen as human is something that is a scarcity, which again, is part of the reason why I set the great famine, like the we in the day in the context of a great famine, like, oh, only one type of person could be the most human and everybody else Mm. on like a scale in relation to that one type but why (laughs) like why like if you if you think your humanity is based off of how much everybody isn't human that's sad i'm I'm gonna operate out of abundance Mm -hmm. i'm saying humanity is not a scarce resource like like in intrinsic dignity and worth is not there are lots of things that are that do have like limited scarcity but like the intrinsic 
value is not one of those things. Humanity is not a scarce resource. That I'm going to put that on bumper sticker somewhere. I think we we need to oh. be reminded of that. This is such an important conversation for all of us to have because all of this happens unknowingly and unintentionally mm-hmm. for the most part. For the most part, yeah. And we and we've grown so accustomed to not wanting to be the other mm. and not wanting to be the person who speaks up in so many places. Mm. And I think it's a lot to our conversations that we're having now because I feel like we're all striving to be that person with the most humanity, as you put it. Mm. And we have that picture in our head. I don't think any of us, at least me, I've never thought of it in those terms, but what are we striving to be? And it's a really revealing and frankly, quite terrifying idea that a lot of us rank our value of humanity by who is less human, by dehumanizing others mm-hmm. to elevate ourselves. And in the context of our conversation, I, I just can't help but wonder if we continue down that road, do we end up in a place where humanity does become a scarce resource? And with just this, you know, collective unit of singular thought. Yeah, I really do. That's a really good question. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, the thing is, there have been so many narratives of, like, the haves and the have-nots, which exist. Like, these systemic disparities do exist. So, like, there is scarcity that it, that exists systemically, but decoupling that systemic scarcity with intrinsic human human value is something that has to be done otherwise people will justify those systemic disparities on those terms of well yeah maybe people won't just up and say this i mean some people will and those are the people who are on the extremes of either side but most people won't up and say like oh yeah i deserve this because you know i'm more human than you or my family worked harder or this that and the other like obviously like i'm entitled to this because i am more human whereas like these disparities like the disparities existing if those things aren't separated if people don't feel that they are actually entitled to having more than other people you know like i think that's if we don't do that work that's where, to your point, it gets into this messiness of people thinking that like humanity equals access to resources. And mm. that is just not true. <laughs> yeah. Like, it can't be true. It can't. I wanted to address something else that you said a little while ago, which is, you know, in the we in the day you talk, you were saying that you want to show the value of collective as mm. well. And in a lot of the context of our conversation, we've been talking about like the negative impacts or the negative association that we can have from aligning ourselves with this collective thought. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how we can balance that better? How can we see the value? What value should we be looking to bring to ourselves from a collective mm. while not sacrificing our own personal identity to that collective thought? Exactly. I mean, like, in the same way that collective can be blinding, individuality can also be extremely blinding especially in this culture of curation me 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 and 
maybe I'm like hypersensitive to this now because of the where I am in my life. Like I, I wrote this book as I was graduating from college. So huh, existential crisis. But I felt like this pressure to construct myself to like fit some mold society wanted. Like, hi, I'm Kyra Ham Dawkins. I do this. I can provide this. I fit into this. Like this, this pressure to exist as a unit to serve a function. I think that collectives remind you that if you self-isolate and you only see yourself in terms of what you can contribute, not necessarily to others, but to systems, which is a whole other thing, you feel uprooted. You feel like severed. You feel lonely. You feel like malnourished in a way, like in your relationships to other people because you're constantly trying to construct yourself to be again perceived like seen as valuable so mm-hmm. like there's intrinsic value that exists in the individual obviously but like you under come to understand who you are through the collectives that you're part of so your intrinsic value and it's like the seed and the collectives that you're part of are like the soil and then how you develop roots. You need, you need the seed, obviously. You don't want to. But if that seed doesn't have like fertile soil, then like there isn't going to be productive growth anywhere. Mm-hmm. Any constructive thriving eye has to exist within like rich soils of wheat. Like you need mm-hmm. both of them. But like. Mm. like if there's something wrong with the seed too that's also bad so that's kind of how you have to strike the balance between Mm. not being so obsessed with your or so like swept up in your collective identity that you don't truly evaluate the health and wellness of yourself and of the collective itself and just sort of like blindly fall into it but you also don't get so obsessed with your selfness Mm -hmm. that you end up isolating away from everyone because you're just so concerned about the container that you want to mold yourself into. So, yeah, they're both important. The seed and the soil are both important to the life of the, the plant. Yes. And I think, you know, there's so many, so many contexts where it's important to, to not want to break free of that because of what you can lose in terms of even just like, I'm thinking of you and your family history. The history of your ancestors is so valuable to you and to who you are. It, mm-hmm. it forms your personal identity. I think where we need to try to strike some of that balance is it, it's not that I need to not align myself with my community. It's that I need to not align myself with my collective for the sake of my collective being better than your collective. Exactly where I feel like a lot of us have gone wrong in this is so speaking to my family history in some way, you know, as a white man, by some definition in society, although we don't think we'd ever say it this way, my group, my community as white people are better than you as black people because we've become more dominant. Mm-hmm. Now, if I say it that bluntly, we can all see the flaws mm. in that thought process. Exactly. And from your perspective, I feel like if, if you were to say the same thing in a, in a way, it would be something to the effect of, well, I want to be proud of my identity 
as a part of the black community. And ultimately one day we're going to end up being better than you. Right. Right. And so obviously that's not what we're looking for either. Exactly. What we're striving for is to let go of that competition really. And yeah. the, compar- the comparative nation, uh, n- notions of that. It, I, yes, I concur with that aforementioned statement because people, the thing that really is really frustrating about watching this discourse happen, whether it be politically, all kinds of things. People think that in forming groups and watching this polarization happen, toxic inversion is not the goal. Like mm. in, to your point, like, Claiming and being proud of the collectors you're part of, that in and of itself is not bad. But again, mm-hmm. deriving entitlement or a sense of superiority because of the collectors that you belong to, that's bad because trying to assert superiority and entitlement is naturally dehumanization. And then leaning further into that, picking up on your example for it to say like, oh, one day, like the black community is going to be power over the white community. Like, no, that's not the goal. Like, it's not to flip it. It's not to be like, well, your ancestors did this and now we're going to do this. And no, no, we, none of that should have happened at all. Like, ugh, like, why repeat the cycle? It's like people, again, operating out of scarcity. I would just like to challenge everyone listening as well as myself to let's, let's think about this more. Let's put these blunt, terms and definitions onto some of the way we interact with society. If we're going to boil down a lot of our conversation, I would say like, we're all looking to have the most humanity that we can. And that by dehumanizing others, we're losing that. Mm -hmm. So if we want to take this conversation and move forward with it, the way we gain the most humanity is by empowering and acknowledging the humanity of others mm-hmm. but and also not shying away from the humanity you have yourself mm, yeah like by embracing who you are as a person but also the collectives that you're part of well this all sounds very um simple and easy to ha! to to place into our everyday life right so easy commonplace stuff like eating cereal no it's, exactly it, it's painful thank you so much for sharing your story with all of us For those of us who grew up in a different community than you, a different context, a different worldview, as we listen to your story of all the different influences that have shaped who you are, what do you want those of us who have completely different experiences to gain from hearing your story? I want you to accept my invitation to think about what you want to do to honor human voices. We all have the capacity to do it. We all have the capacity to do it. It, it It's hard. And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm good at it. I'm, I'm, I'm new to all of this. We're all new to it. Every single day when we wake up, we have to make the decision to do it. But you have your story for a reason. I have my story for a reason. So <laughs> as cliche as this sounds, let's use our stories to help construct and positively shape and contribute to the story of humanity so that everybody could have equal access to having their story honored. It's an individual unit feeding into this collective narrative that's beautiful and broken and deeply flawed and all kinds of stuff. But we have to acknowledge all of that. Well, that's not 
at all cliche to say on this podcast because that's <laughs> what I'm trying, what I'm hoping to be a part of here. Exactly. That's awesome. So speaking then to some of those people who really resonate with parts of your story, whether they're young Black women or aspiring writers, what would you want to say to those people who have had similar experiences to yours? What would you want them to take away from your story? Mm -hmm. I would want them to know that they can do it. I'd want for them to know that it's painful sometimes. Like, if there are times, particularly fellow, fellow young Black women, fellow creatives, there are times when it sucks. Like, don't think that if you're not enjoying every aspect of what you're doing, that you're doing something wrong. Of course, like, don't be completely miserable. But like, at the end of the day, most things worth doing take hard work. And even the things that you love the most in life are going to have like pain points. So keep going. And there might be beauty that emerges from the painful aspects of it. When I was writing the lead of the day, I felt like something was being cleaved out of me at mm. times. Like there were some parts that I wrote of it that completely cut me off guard because I was like, I, this story is sad. Like mm. there are parts of the story that are really, really, really sad. But here I am writing it. And I'm not backing away from it as painful as it is for me to like look at and write. So I want for people to relate to my story or see aspects of themselves in me or want to create or deal with the societal assumptions and pressures of being a young Black woman to know that they've got this. Well, Kara, I can't thank you enough for coming on with me today and me being so open and vulnerable with your story and for really making all of us think. I think we could all afford to, I think we can think more. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and say that 10 times fast after we get off this. <laughs> but I, I love the encouragement and the thought provoking narrative that you brought to this episode today. And, and I hope it really sparks a lot of thought processes and in a lot of us who listen to this. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. This has been a pleasure. It was, it was fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. I had a great time too. And I might have to have you back because I think there's a lot that we could keep talking about in this conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm ready. Well, Kyra, thank you again so much for joining me today. And I look forward to continuing with this conversation with you again another time. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Epics Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Kyra's story, follow her on social media in the links in the description below wherever you are consuming this podcast. And if you'd like to read her book, The We and the They... There's a link to that in the description as well. Buying her book will not only support Kyra, but it will support the Epics podcast as well when you use this link and buy your copy of Kyra's book from a local bookstore. If you have listened this far, thanks again, and I encourage you to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with someone you know would enjoy it. Hit play next week for another Epic story. See you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.